Again, we're glad to be with you, and I'm still Dave Mitchell, and uh, we welcome you once again to Calvary Church. And we have an opportunity to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're beginning, as I said, a brand new series on 1 John. You have an outline that you're going to find available. uh, uh, (laughs) You're going to find an outline available for you that you're going to find very helpful in your uh, journey together. I'm going to be referring to uh, a couple of things on it in just a moment. 1 John, I want to introduce you to 1 John. And uh, the whole theme is promoting this true life, real love. We live in a world where there is a lot of fake things going on, false things that are being said, where there are no absolute truths, and that's your truth but not my truth, that kind of a mindset that is going on. And we also live in a world where there is not real love. There's a lot of fake love that's going on. We see a lot of fake love in reality shows on TV, and they claim to be reality shows about husbands and wives in Orange County, and, uh, and yet it looks about as fake as the plastic surgery on their face. And so what we need to understand is that there is a re- real love that we need to express and pursue, and there is a true life that God has called us into. And the Apostle John is the man that we want to explore with this morning. I want to show you how promoting this true life and real love can take place. Now, the Apostle John that faithful man who wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then he wrote the book of Revelation. And we looked at Revelation a lot last Sunday. You see on the map on the screen that he wrote primarily to these churches that are in what we referred to in those days as Asia Minor. Today we call it Turkey. Now they are, for the most part, tourist stops where you look at the relics and the ruins of those churches that Uh, and those communities that once existed in prominence in those days. And it is believed that John actually lived the last couple of decades of his life in the city of Ephesus. And that's where you see Ephesus prominent there in the middle of the screen. One of the realities of John's life is that even as faithful as he was in walking with the Lord and speaking the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, John lives out the latter days of his life in a little island called Patmos. It's not Hawaii. It wasn't a resort island. It was a rock. And there he is being held against his will. And it was in the Isle of Patmos that God gave to John that revelation that we looked at last week. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as he wrote about the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1, in chapters 2 and 3, there are the seven churches that he addresses as well. And he gives them compliments and he gives them rebukes and he tells them commendations of those things that they should do instead. To those same churches, he also has written the little, little letter of First John, Second John, and Third John. He calls them fathers. He calls them children. It's sort of a, a paternalistic kind of relationship that he has with a lot of those dear people as he wants to address the realities of those things that are going on. To promote a true life and real love Here's the first little segment to sort of the big picture of the letter of 1 John. We need to understand the living the truth of God in what we say and what we believe is what we do. The problem is this inconsistency. 1 John 2 says this, By this we know that we have come to know Him. How do I know that I have the real life? How do I know I have a true relationship with Jesus Christ? If we keep His commandments... The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. John was very real in his writing. 
He just outright calls him a liar. He doesn't say, well, we might have a, a difference of opinion. He says, you are a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. If you say you are a follower of Jesus, then prove it in what you do. Sometimes we have a hard time accepting that if this is what God says that I should do it is a reasonable way to live our life. I'd like to show you a little video that puts it into other settings to help understand What does it mean to say, if this is my God, this is how I should live? If you put it in other settings, it sort of sheds new light on this reality. Take a look at this whole video. Do I believe in wife? I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Who doesn't? I believe in wife. So do you think you live your life any differently because you believe in wife? I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I, I put the toilet seat down, if that counts. Do you ever talk to wife? No, man, uh, I'm not, I, you know, I don't really talk to wife, I'm not, I'm not one of those wife nuts. Oh yes, I believe in mom. What do you think mom is like? I think she's big and powerful and she wants me to be happy. What makes you happy? Being comfortable and doing my own thing and not being bothered by my sister. Anything else? Um, getting lots of toys. Does mom ever ask you to do anything? If she did, that wouldn't make me very happy. Sounds like mom is pretty easygoing. Oh yes, she's very nice. I think she's smiling on me right now. Yeah, I believe in boss. I mean, my views probably aren't orthodox, but sure. Yeah, I believe in boss. Can you describe some of your views of boss? Well, I think boss is really whatever we make him or her out to be. I mean, each person decides what kind of boss they want to believe in. And I don't think anybody should try to impose their views or act like their boss is the true boss. I mean, that's just intolerant. So you don't think it matters whether you're right about boss or not? Well, I don't really use words like right or wrong. I mean, I think it's all relative. You may see one thing about boss, and I see another thing about him or her. Maybe you think that boss says things like, get back to work and be on time, and that's fine, whatever, I'm okay with that, but don't act like I have to believe in that kind of boss. So you get the idea. What John was concerned about, John wished he had that video to show it to the people at Ephesus. That in every other realm of life, we sort of have allegiance to this is who I work for, this is who my wife is, this is who my mother or father is, and so therefore there are rules and there are 
guidelines and there are authority figures and so therefore we live our lives accordingly. But somehow in the world today we've gotten this image that God can be defined according to my desires. And we redefine Him and what He says and that's why John says, by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. And so in the, in the, in the first epistle of John, we're going to learn that this is who God is, this is what He requires of us, and if you're doing anything less than that, as John says, you're a liar. You don't have God in your life. You don't have Christ in your life. And so we want to have a true life where there is real love. The second thing we learn from John is this. We need to recognize, as he did, the failed belief systems of our time. And he boldly addresses them. He boldly addresses the failed belief systems where, like this uh, employee, is sort of redesigning what God says for her own liking. It says in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, notice he doesn't pull any punches. He says, there is an evil one that is coming. Even now many Antichrists have appeared. There are many out there in the world today, in John's day and today, that we could call the Antichrist because they are a false representation of who Jesus is. And they falsely speak those things that Jesus never would agree with. And they are therefore antichrist. Nothing politically correct about it, but John didn't worry about that then, nor do we in this text today. From this hour we know that it is the last hour. He says we have to be aware. To the church at Ephesus, we see these words in Acts 20, where the apostle Paul is departing from the leadership. And he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. And so the warning shot is there. There are going to be those that will come and try to present what they believe is to be true, but it is false. They're antichrists. They're liars. They're savage wolves. And as we go through the first John letter, we're going to see and identify those kinds of antichrists, those wolves, if you will, that wrap themselves in sheep's clothing to somehow distract and dissuade us from living out the life that God has given to us. I'll put on the back side of this is sort of the big picture of the whole letter of 1 John. Some of those things, I've used this before and adapted this. I add some of my own little tweaks to this, but got the idea from Erwin Lutzer's book called Satanic Evangelistic Strategies for the New Age. These are some of the big picture issues that we're dealing with today, where they're rooted and how they're being reflected. The classical name, for example, of pantheism, that God is everywhere. And you see this being driven in the Garden of Eden where in the garden Satan comes to Eve and says, you will be like God. Pride is, I am becoming God. I will be God. And so God is everywhere. I, I can live my life according to the God that I designed for myself. I make up my own truth. When that happens, the resulting beliefs are, in the next box over, God is simply a force. He's not personal. There's no personal relationship with God. There are a lot of churches that have no personal relationship with God. They don't know what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, where He is Savior and Lord, to live in their lives and to guide them. This is all part of that. That God is all that exists, that matter is illusionary, that we are all gods in that sense. And there is even a, a faith that believes that we become gods someday. 
Some of the contemporary expressions of that, I control my own life, like the employee there sitting playing solitaire at her desk. Many ways to God, salvation. Jesus is just a way. He is not the way to God. We find a lot of animal rights uh, that are today. There is more concern over a porpoise that has beached himself than a baby who is in the mother's womb. There's environmental extremism. Uh, we, we are, I just saw a commercial where they're advertising Fiji water, and Fiji water has never been touched by human hands. It simply comes from the earth. It is true water. Well, even if it touches human hands, assuming you wash your hands, it can still be okay. But there's something special about the earth. There's human potential where you believe in yourself. And frankly, I determine my own truth. You have no right to tell me I am wrong. And so there is this resistance to anybody imposing their belief system on them. A second area is reincarnation. That was rooted in what Satan said here in Genesis 3, where he says, you shall surely not die, where there is a sort of a, uh, a, um, a resistance to believe in the reality and the harshness of death. I determine my own destiny. So there's a sense in reincarnation and the resulting beliefs that time is cyclical. We keep going around. There's no consequences for wrongdoing. Evolution is big because we're just simply flesh. We just die and that's the end of it. And we hopefully will get better someday. And this godless system of creationism that is being promoted in evolution where there is a godless world that somehow we've just by chance become who we are today and that life is simply very random and just a, a chance of life. And so we find some of these studies that disavow hell. You never see people uh, writing books about I died and went to hell for 30 seconds. Um, you just don't... It just doesn't sound like something anybody would ever want to read anyways. Uh, there is no judgment in death. So everybody goes to heaven. We just don't worry about death. Everybody's doesn't matter what funeral you go to. And funerals, people are perfect, you know. And, uh, and I've done enough of those myself. There's this channeling. There's no fear of suicide. And we find this growing phenomenon of suicide that takes place. There's the cheapened value of life. There's doctor-assisted suicide. Here in the state of California, we're promoting that now. And uh, there's no point in living if you can't live a full life the way I want to live my life. And no one can know that they can go to heaven after death. And there are churches that believe that, that you can't possibly know that if you die, for sure you go to heaven. There are churches that believe that. And that you only live once, so make the most of it, sort of like a beer commercial. And so there is that kind of philosophy that goes on. There's relativism that is prominent today. You will know good and evil, Satan says to Eve. You will know good and evil. And the sense is that I would determine my own morals. I'll determine what's right and wrong for me. So there are no absolutes, the beliefs, resulting beliefs, that morality depends on the situation. And that whatever feels good is right. Evil is illusionary. So redefine sin for certain behaviors. And so we are today doing that, as in the very last box. The Bible is not interpreted literally, but rather allegorically, and we are reinterpreted for our times. The Bible that John wrote, that's 2,000 years ago. He might have written about 80, 90 A.D. Well, that was a long time ago. Society has changed a lot since then. And so therefore, we can't take literally what he said there and make it relevant for today. So I need to change it to make it relevant for me today. And so there is this manipulating and massaging that. There's a higher degree of sexual morality and acceptance of that sexual immorality today. 
Abortion has been on the increase in many ways, although there's a tapering off of that as the reality of 3D images of the unborn baby hopefully has impact on the reality of what that child is. Marriage is being redefined now. The Supreme Court is going to make a decision. Supreme Court is going to tell us what marriage is. Anyways, I thought I'd get a reaction about that. But uh, it's just, it, it just, there's something like, are, are you kidding me? I'm just going to sit here and just say, well, the Supreme Court can define marriage for me and for us? It's just, uh, there's kind of a, it's kind of a parallel world of insanity that seems to be going on. Uh, marriage is redefined. Living together outside of marriage is okay. We do have couples, and I don't mean to be judgmental. We're glad to have anybody here. Anybody can come here. Living together, homosexuals, living together, I don't care. You're welcome to come and worship with us. But the reality is that we call sin, sin. And we understand those things, but we don't do it to put you away. We understand to draw you in, to know the truth of what God says. And why does he say these things? Why does he define things in these ways? Because he knows best how society works and people work. So homosexual behavior becomes accepted, deviant lifestyles and romalized. Schools devalue the absolute truth. God's commands are ignored or modified to accept sinful behavior. And the, the old little phrase, whatever works for you. And the last area is spiritualism. You will have your eyes open, Satan says. All I have, I have all the knowledge I need. And there's this sort of this vague craziness. Used to be so much prominent in Marianne Williamson, if you ever followed her courses on miracles. It's just kind of a crazy, like, I don't even understand what you're saying, but it sounds really good. And uh, that kind of a, a focus as well. And there's a little bit of a phrase, I am not a religious person, but I am a spiritual person. And I'm not even sure what that means. But what Paul wants to address, I mean, what John wants to address is that reality. He wants to point where there is truth, and he wants to point out where there are lies. He wants to also show us this, that he promotes the true nature in the ministry of Jesus Christ. What I love about John is this. John had a very simple task. And this is something that is so important for you and me. There is so much that we want to do as a church and we want to impact people's lives in so many ways. But what I love about John and his little letter, five chapters, is that he brings it right back down to the basics, the core. He says, I simply want to present to you who Christ is. And I want to bring you to Christ. And I want you to live a life for Christ. And so it's very core-oriented in this way. Why did Christ come in this world? And it is this very simple little phrase. And we'll look at this next Sunday. Because most of us don't use the word propitiation very often in our language today. And he says, He Himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus came into the world to do one thing. And it's to take away our sins. To take away the sins of everybody. And all who come to Him in faith, that will be true for them. And so that's what John is preaching. He's not trying to fix every marriage and here are five steps to make your marriage better. He's not trying to say if you have a horrible boss, here are five ways you can make that boss smile on you. He's not going down those roads as important as those things can be. He's going to bring us right back to the meat and potatoes of what it means to be a follower of Christ. The true life and the real love that we express to one another. And then finally, I need to follow John's example that I never lose the reality of sin through denial or deception. We're going to explore this more next Sunday. But these two little uh, verses here, in verses 8 and 10 of 1 John 1, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. The reality is that everybody in this room is a sinner. We are all sinners. There is none of us are exempt. I'm not exempt. I sin. I still need Jesus as my Savior to come and constantly cleanse me and heal me and restore me and convict me. None of us are exempt. It's not like you're the only one in this room and all these other people are perfect around you. It is not the case. We might dress up a little prettier on Sunday, but it doesn't make us any prettier on the inside because we're all sinners. And so John is pleading. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar because God says, for all have sinned. And we're going to explore that more next Sunday and sort of dig into that. But, but I, I appreciate John's heart. And, and John's heart is this, that it's harsh to refer to us as sinners. Why do I want to go to a place and have some preacher guy tell me how bad I am? <laughs> Who wants to go and be told how bad they are? You like to go into your boss's office and him to tell you how bad of an employee you are? So why would you want to go to a church and have a church pastor tell you how bad you are? Most of us have a sense of a healthy sense of shame and guilt already built in. And we already struggle with that. But the reality is that there is this, this, this redefinition and this manipulation of that there is no sin in the world today. And I can get away with more. We'll explore that and what that really means. But John was so real in his, in his writings that I'm not going to shy away from the reality of sin. And that's a term that is, uh, is being lost in much of the world today. Now, let's get into 1 John 1. We're going to look at just four verses. In 1 John 1, 4, 1 through 4, let me read the verses for us. And it says this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. These things we write. Why? So that our joy may be made complete. That is what John is going for. Let me show you how I break this down and understand it. We follow the example of the, the Apostle Paul, and it is this. He wants to balance the teaching on truth with will real relational love for others. And that's what he is working on in this particular chapter. Let me move down, and it is this. Confirm your knowledge and your personal experience with Jesus Christ. What was from the beginning we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. There are these things that John wants to emphasize, and it is this. You need to confirm that you yourself are walking with Christ today. Uh, kind of an example. You know when you get on an airplane... You're sitting on the airplane and the flight attendant stands in front of you and now they put it on TV screens for the most part. What's the first thing they tell you about the oxygen mask? Put it on yourself. If you have a minor or someone who is disabled sitting next to you and they're unable, 
you put your oxygen mask on first, and then you apply their oxygen mask, and you hope it's going to make a difference if the plane crashes. You, you think, oh, I got the oxygen mask on, so I'm okay. It doesn't matter what happens now. Well, the fact is that you put that oxygen mask on yourself first, thinking, well, I need to, I need to help them. No, no, you take care of yourself first. I see what John is doing here is the same thing. He says, I want you to confirm what you have before you try to communicate to others what they should have. So the reality of what John is saying is this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Notice these four words. Heard, seen, looked at, and touched. John is telling his testimony. This is what I have. This is what I want you to have. So what is the reality of what John wants for us to have a true life? That I would hear things, that I would see things, and that I would touch things. He says, I want it to be a full sensory experience with Jesus. And so what are those things that you will hear about Christ in this book? You will hear these things that, number one, Jesus is God. You cannot be saved if, unless you believe that Jesus is God. Let me read 1 John 4, 15. It says this to us. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. So I need to confess that Jesus is God. Secondly, I need to confess that Jesus is a man. If you drop or move up to verse 2. By this we know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So there's two confessions. Confession number one in verse 15, Jesus is God. Confession number two in verse two, Jesus has come in the flesh. He is man. He is fully man. The reason that John is saying that is because in those days that John was combating this false belief system of a Gnosticism. Gnostics believe that the flesh and the material do not relate to each other. That it doesn't matter what happens to the body. And so there are two, there's a consequence in terms of this. That if it doesn't matter what happens to the body, the body is evil, and it's only the spirit that counts, then I can do whatever I want with the body. It doesn't matter. There's a little bit of a Gnosticism today. I can do anything I want with my body, and you have no right to tell me that's wrong or right, because it's what I believe. It's sort of a Gnostic, Gnostic way of living. And there are those in those days that didn't believe that Jesus came in human flesh. So John is saying, wait, you can't be saved if you don't believe that Jesus is a man in human flesh. He wasn't just a spirit. He wasn't illusionary. He was for real, a man, but he was God. And that, therefore, that Jesus died for your sins and that faith alone saves you. Those are the things that he heard. Those are truths about Christ that will never change. Also, secondly, the things that you have seen or looked at. In John 20, the Gospel of John, John writes, Therefore many signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. What are those things that I see Jesus doing? And here's, here's the reality. What do I know that I have heard that is true about Christ? And here's what you and I need to have to promote true life. What are those things I see Jesus doing? Think in your mind for a moment. What have you seen Jesus do in a friend's life? In a neighbor's life? In a fellow church member's life? Can you recount 
seen Christ change people's lives? Remember when we had the baptisms here recently? You see lives being changed. Telling new stories of new starts, new beginnings. Changes. In order to be able to promote true life, I need to show that Jesus changes lives. I've seen it. I've looked at it. And then also, we need to experience it. He says, what have you touched or experienced in the life of Christ? As he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. How has Christ touched my life? As you think about it, what has Jesus done for me? How has He touched me? How have I interacted with Him? What has my experience been? How am I different? Those things are critical. What have I heard? What have I seen? What have I felt from Jesus in my life? That's why John is saying, you need to begin with you. Where has Christ interacted with your life? What you heard in your mind, what you saw with your eyes, and what you feel or touch in your heart. And if I don't have those three things going on, hearing, seeing, feeling Christ, there may not be the reality of Christ and the fullness of all that He wants. So as we go through 1 John, I want us to have the reality of that. And then when we have that reality, we make it known. Notice what he says in verses 2 and 3. I make known that reality of what I've heard, what I've seen, what I've touched, and the like was manifested. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. I testify like in a courtroom, and uh, which was with the Father and was manifested to us what we have seen and heard. We proclaim to you also so that you may too have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. I make known that to others. One of the great testimonies you know, in the world where there is no absolute truth. What you can do is this. You know, you and I may believe differently. But here of what, here's what I have seen. You know this guy that I, I bump into out there on Santiago right, Road and riding our, our road bikes. He didn't believe anything that I'm talking about this morning. But what I can share with him is that here, here is where Christ has interacted with my life. And I'll share about an experience or a story or a situation or a person, maybe some of you, where I've seen God do a miracle. And you know, we can't push back on my experience, what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've touched. That is a reality. Testify to those things. Make them known because... In that fellowship that happens, lives are changed. And then finally, express the joy of what that means. These things are right so that you may have your joy be made complete. I want to tell you this story. I'm going to do something. One of the sad realities of my experience is that we had a youth pastor in one of our churches that I used to be at. And sadly, his, his wife committed a terrible sexual immorality with a, a student in our youth group. And uh, it's just like the worst. So it caught my eye when I read this last week of another student pastor, you know the youth pastor, that was caught by the police inappropriately with another underage girl. So he was arrested and detained. The police called up the wife of the youth pastor and 
said, we have your son down here, I mean, your, your husband down here, and went on. She said, oh, this is a lie. You couldn't buy. No, he would never do that. He would never do that. And I said, yes. And so they finally convinced her, and she came down to the police station. And there he was, and she heard him confess to these horrible things. And here's what caught me about this story, and is this. That church that she and her, pa- her husband as pastor served, she said, I can't stay here anymore. I've got to leave. I've got to have a fresh start. There's too much ugly history here. So she came back to the church one more time to say her goodbyes. She tells about that experience. She says, I wanted my church to know that I was going to be all right, so I decided to attend one last time. I arrived after the worship began. I used a side entrance to avoid interactions. I stood in the wings of the sanctuary and wept. I planned to exit right after the sermon. I would leave and never see them again. But that was not God's plan. At the end of the ser- sermon, an older couple approached me, then a student. Then others came, and some spoke. Others slipped money into my trembling hands. I shook, not just from tears, but with a sheer magnitude of grace. The line stretched down the aisle and around the sanctuary. They expressed grief and concern for me and my children and said nothing at all, but just, they just held me. Thus began the slow, tedious journey toward healing. Some days were terrifying, yet this church never left our side. They provided us a parsonage to live in and gave me a job, gave me job leads. They gave my children food, clothing, Christmas presents. They didn't push, but allowed us to heal at God's speed. For a long time, that meant just allowing us to attend church quietly, our hurting souls being fed by preaching and corporate worship. In the aftermath of the arrest, our church brought in experts to help us to legally and biblically address the situation. Care was given to the victims and the grieving, confused teens. We re-examined policies to better protect the youth. In her last paragraph, I'm still in touch with the victims. I ache for them every day. But I also marvel at their strength and their desire to live courageous, beautiful lives. I'm amazed at the resiliency of my children. We are thriving because of the gospel, because of grace. I've learned that God is more real than I could imagine, that He is truly the God who sees and knows, and that His grace is felt every day in the warm embrace of His people. What this young mom has discovered is that when you have a true life in Christ, there's real love that is given and received. That's the reality what John is speaking to. This is a real-life illustration, a story to be told, where God is still in the business of changing lives. And that's why I love, that's why I love this one little phrase that he show, throws in here in 1 John 1. He says, when you, when you do these things, he says to them, that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That when we live out, when we live this out, I've heard, I've seen, I've touched Jesus. I make that known so that your joy may be made full. 
that it draws us together in fellowship. And that for every wounded heart from some of the most grievous things that we are victims of, that the community of Christ comes together in that fellowship of real love and lives continue to be changed. That's why we have Mentor Me taking place tonight. That's why we provide life groups where people one-on-one gather. Because lives change relationships. So we're going to receive communion now. And one of the things I invite you to do is this. I'd love to come out here so I get out of the glare of the light and I can actually see you. But I'm going to invite you to do something right now. I love that you're all here. But as we receive communion, could we in some symbolic way say, just as God has given to us this fellowship that comes from a true life in Christ and real love to one another, that reality sometimes has to be symbolically expressed as well. So I'm going to invite those who are on the outside, would you just walk towards the inside? And those of you on the inside, squeeze tighter. What I think would be rich is for us to receive communion now, but we're not sitting two seats, three seats, four seats apart, so you can put your handbag and your laptop and your iPad between other people, but let's just have shoulder-to-shoulder experience. So take all your belongings, because you probably won't return to that seat that you're now going to leave. And so come into the middle, and we're going to receive communion shoulder-to-shoulder, symbolic of the fellowship that God wants for each of us as we serve the Lord together. There are seats right up here in the front, and they don't cost any more than the back seats. Best seats in the house. The ushers are preparing the elements, and uh, thank you for your cooperation. Doesn't it feel good to sit close together? There's something nice about that. As we go through 1 John, we're going to do all that we can to encourage fellowship, real love. And we thank you for your help in making that happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also received to, delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to receive the elements of the bread, symbolic of the body of Christ. And we are the body of Christ. And the body of Christ united is powerful. And as we sit together, we express some of that power because there's something dynamic that happens as we convene together around this beautiful table called communion where we hear, see, and now we're going to touch the bread, symbolic of that body of Jesus Christ. Let me thank the Lord for it. Help us, Father as we come before you, that we would have the reality of Christ in us, his true life. Father, we have heard, we have seen, we have touched how Christ can make a difference in people's lives. Help us now that we symbolically live out 
the communion we have with you as we receive this bread. In Jesus' name, amen.